0: You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Richard Thompson-Ford, Stanford Law professor and author of Dress Codes. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I think affirmative action is a perfectly sensible policy. You know, it's interesting that affirmative action began under the Nixon administration. So you know, not a liberal, not a progressive as one of a number of tools designed to reverse and remedy longstanding patterns of discrimination. It's a policy that makes perfect sense. My criticism has to do with some of the rationale, and in particular the way that the Supreme Court in uh, the Bakke decision restricted the acceptable the constitutionally acceptable rationales for affirmative action to the diversity rationale in the context of higher education. Well, one question involves land use policies like zoning, so um a significant impediment to Achieving housing equality is the use of local land use policies in order to prevent, for instance, low-income housing, multifamily housing from being built in certain areas. And this is a source not only of restriction of housing opportunities in particular areas, but it also affects the way public resources are distributed because a lot of public resources are tied to local residents. In The United States, if let's say a wealthy suburb, has a strong tax base and keeps most of the revenue raised through property taxes for itself. The fact that low-income people can't move into that jurisdiction means that that public revenue is restricted to wealthier people. And that's a big problem for achieving sound public policy and social equity. Given the history of displacement in American cities, they're not wrong to suspect that the next step will be. Um, you know, we'll be pushed out. Both of my parents grew up in the Jim Crow South. Um, my mother, I was just talking to her a couple of days ago about the way that, you know, when they went to the movies, they had to sit in the, um, in the colored section, which were the seats furthest away from the screen or on particular days. They could only go on certain days. They knew when the white schools were getting new textbooks because they got the old that were handed down that the way cities developed in the United States was inextricably intertwined with race. So that led me naturally to start to think about civil rights issues, both in the area of constitutional law and in the area of what we lawyers call statutory law, meaning legislation passed by, for instance, Congress, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I want to be clear that the civil rights legislation, for instance, the civil rights act of 1964, has been enormously important. And so in no sense, do I want to suggest that that legislation is unnecessary. It's just that it's insufficient. So in the area of housing again, for instance, that's one of the areas of civil rights law, where laws frankly have been the least successful. Uh, the United States continues to have dramatically racially segregated cities and uh, you know in any major metropolitan area people can identify for instance the african american neighborhood in many communities the latino neighborhood so the idea that these laws would lead to equal opportunities for housing that hasn't come about and one of the things that i've tried to do in my work is demonstrate the way that laws that don't seem to be directly related to social equality to equality of opportunity to racial justice in fact are, and that it's only through also reforming these kind of systemic and institutionalized forms of discrimination that we could truly achieve an egalitarian society. So what I've really wanted to argue against is the idea that civil rights are you know, a kind of a magic bullet and that, that those kinds of laws alone would be sufficient to achieve. There are different things to be said about employment. The diversity rationale is, fine as one rationale, but I don't think it's the only rationale that's reasonable for affirmative action. And what the Bakke decision and subsequent affirmative action decisions have done is they've made it difficult for universities to talk about the history of racial subordination. Because if a university were to say, we have an affirmative action policy in order to help remedy the Long-standing effects of racial discrimination—that rationale is unconstitutional, and so that's evidence that their affirmative action program is not justified according to the Supreme Court. Don't think it's the only rationale that's reasonable for affirmative action. And what the Bakke decision and subsequent affirmative action decisions have done is they've made it difficult for universities to talk about the history of racial subordination because if a university were to say we have an affirmative action policy in order to help remedy the long-standing effects of racial discrimination that rationale is unconstitutional and so that's evidence that their affirmative action program is not justified according to the supreme court and so in fact what that decision has done is it's been a gag order on university administrations from talking about the history of racism and uh, racial discrimination and exclusion in this country. Instead, they can only talk about diversity as if the reason universities aren't diverse is somehow mysterious, is something that uh, we're not sure why. I mean, anyone, for instance, who grew up in the 1980s, as I did, will remember a lot in the media that regularly depicted African-Americans As thugs, as criminals, there was a television show called cops. You might remember it almost every week. It was a kind of reality TV show, but every week they picked, um, you know, some group of African-American gang members or criminals as the focus. And so it reinforced this idea that, you know, most African-Americans are criminals, most criminals are African-American. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, it is of course true that a lot of high crime areas. Um, are heavily minority areas uh, because of poverty and because of that history of racial subordination and segregation that I've been describing, you know, that many African-Americans are, um, you know, are are kind of shunted into the most undesirable neighborhoods. But without understanding that history, one then gets the idea, the stereotype that African-Americans are, you know, predisposed toward crime or something along those lines. And something like this target is, you know, a particularly offensive and horrific example of that kind of mentality. Um, there are a lot of other reforms that would be useful in improving American policing. You know, certainly there's there there's biased attitudes on the part of some police officers. Policing is decentralized; it's a local matter, and so there's a wide range of training and a wide range of. Um, different types of protocols. Some police departments, the officers are quite well-trained. They have protocols in place in order to try to prevent or reduce racial bias. Policing is well thought out. In others, police are very poorly trained. Some local police departments take the rejects from the better cities, and they are engaged in a type of policing that really no one can defend. Like Things like revenue-based policing, where a lot of the policing is being done just in order to raise fine revenue. These kinds of patterns are leading to uh, an increased number of unnecessary encounters with police and an increased likelihood of police violence. Last thing I'd say is the proliferation of guns in American society just makes policing a more violent um, and dangerous and danger-prone activity than it is in other places some statistics for instance show that american police are 40 times more likely to be killed in the line of duty than police in other countries like germany or great britain so as a consequence of course they're more trigger happy themselves some of this then is it's not justified but it's understandable and these are problems in our society that could be confronted Um, and in one sense the cause these kinds of problems maybe more important than individual racism on the part of individual police officers. I'm not saying that's not a problem, but what I am saying is that given these structural features, we would continue to have African-Americans have this conversation with their children, particularly their sons, that if you have an encounter with a police officer, you need to be very certain that that police officer knows you're not a threat. Um, You know, you need to comply even if the police officer is wrong. You sort out the legalities later. But, uh, um, you know, arguing with the police officer is a very dangerous thing. Uh, For someone who's an African-American in our society, I do think that they, you know, in in today's environment, most Black people have that painful conversation with their kids. We present ourselves and our bodies every day in public. And the way we do that, is profoundly important. It's the way we establish a sense of self in a social domain. And clothing is the most direct way that's accomplished. And so, of course, it has political significance. And that's why it's always been regulated. Um, Something that's trivial and superficial doesn't inspire a lot of rules and laws. But in fact, In our society up to the present day, there are lots of rules and laws around what people can wear. So, those statements that are made can have profound significance, you know, at an almost subconscious level. That's why people were worried when African Americans dressed in refined clothing, because it suggested against the dominant ideology of the time of white supremacy that African Americans were refined and sophisticated. That's what that clothing suggests. When women, wore masculine clothing. It suggested that those women could assert masculine privileges and masculine liberties, um, because that's what that clothing suggested. It suggested that the women were um, not only refined, but also sober, practical, industrious, all of the things that women were denied in that context. And that made it uh, a threat to the existing social order. And this is still true today. And so it's still a reason that clothing is the subject of rules, the subject of it's, uh, profound social expectations and norms that are consistently enforced in formal ways, but also in subtle, but no less powerful ways. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.